Afternoon, friends. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us, and we pray that as we spend some time reflecting on your word, that as you've promised, we might hear you speak. And we pray, Father, that your word would be effective in our lives, that by your word and spirit we might live lives to please you. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I hope you do come along to annual conference. One of the many things you have to do, I guess, including tell Duncan that he's good looking, according to this poster, if you can find it over there. So if your name's Duncan, that's good for you. I want to start by asking you to do a favour for me, and you need to trust me on it. I'm going to ask you to please close your eyes. You can trust me. Just just close your eyes. I want you to imagine while your eyes are closed that what you can see now is your life. That is, I want you to imagine that you have no sight, that you're blind. Imagine that actually you've been born this way. 20 years, 30 years, never seen the sky. You've never seen a flower, never seen a tree. You've never seen a sunset. You've never seen your own parents' face. You've never seen a smile, never seen a tear. And because, if we extend this for a moment, let's pretend that you live in a different age, a different time, time where if you can't see, it's going to be very hard for you to participate meaningfully in society. How are you going to live if you can't see? So you've spent your whole life begging of other people's charity just so you can live. What a life that would be. And whilst you're sitting there begging one day in your darkness, along comes a man, a man who does something astounding. He opens your eyes and restores your sight and suddenly you can see. You've never seen before. You get your sight back, which means that you get life. How happy do you think you would be that day? How joyful do you reckon you'd be? Not just that day, but probably the next day, probably actually every day after that. What exuberance you would have just have been given your sight. Thank you. You can open your eyes. Now, maybe that exercise is a bit trivial compared to the seriousness of actually being blind. But it might give you just some inkling of the magnitude of what happens when your sight would be restored if you'd been blind. And it gives you some inkling maybe of what goes on for the man that we will read about today who met Jesus of Nazareth. What was his experience? We're in John chapter 9. If you've brought a Bible today, it would be really helpful to open that up. You might like to share it with the person next to you so you can follow along. And there's an outline in front of you which will be completely unhelpful. I pretty much abandoned all the headings that are there and written some new ones up on the board. 
Um, so you can just cross them out and scribble these ones in. That might be more helpful. It's a great idea to take notes. helps you to focus and learn together from God's Word. We're starting by talking about a blind man who sees. Let me just go through the story in outline of what happens when Jesus meets this man who's born blind. It has an in and out sort of structure. You can see it there on the board. It starts with Jesus meeting the man and then it moves to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, meeting the man. And then the Pharisees meet the man's parents and then it comes back out again. The Pharisees meet the man again and then Jesus meets the man again. So it goes in and then out. Well, what happens here as we look at that? First of all, Jesus meets the man. Chapter 9 of John's Gospel, verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Well, what does Jesus do for this blind man? You can see it down there in verses 6 and 7. Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud with the saliva and puts it on the man's eyes. And then he tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. It's very simply told. No big kerfuffle over how this miracle, how this sight was restored. It just is narrated to us. And that's because in some ways the main focus of this chapter isn't how Jesus did the miracle, but more what happens as a result of this miracle. What this miracle really means and how people respond to it. That's really what this focus of this chapter is about. So Jesus meets the man and restores his physical sight. Then he's taken to the Pharisees. So we come to the second section, the Pharisees and the man, verses 13 through to 17. And what happens here is he's brought to the Pharisees and the Pharisees have difficulty accepting that this man has been healed, particularly healed by Jesus. This ties into some ongoing strife that was happening between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day. It goes back in John's Gospel to chapter 5, which we've skipped over in these talks. Chapter 5, Jesus healed an invalid who'd been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy does so. It's astounding. But the problem for the Pharisees was that Jesus asked him to do it on a Sabbath day, a holy day, when you shouldn't do any work and carrying your mat qualified as work. So it brought Jesus into tension with these religious leaders. And what's more, when they started reflecting on what Jesus had done, that he'd healed this man, that was an issue for them too, because you probably shouldn't heal somebody on a Sabbath day. That's probably work. So Jesus and the Pharisees come into tension, and that tension just builds and builds and builds through these chapters. That uh, that he'd healed the invalid on the Sabbath uh, reappears again in chapter 7. It's an ongoing point of tension. So here in chapter 9, when Jesus heals another guy, this guy, a guy blind since birth, the Pharisees discover that it happened on a Sabbath day. You can read it there in verses 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. This is their concern. How did this happen? Did Jesus break a Sabbath law in giving you your sight back? I mean, yes, 20, 30 years in total darkness because you're blind and now you can see. But did he do it on a Sabbath and was it work? That's the issue for them. That just seems a bit weird, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem just a little bit sort of getting the cart before the horse? And that's the way we'll see. That's indeed what's going on here. So there's a bit of a dispute amongst them. 
Who is this Jesus? Is he from God or not? Because if he's from God, surely he wouldn't break the Sabbath rules. And you can see the tension there in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How could a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided amongst themselves. They asked the man, and the man says, Look, I think he's a prophet. So we've had Jesus meeting the man and healing him. We've had Jesus, uh, the Pharisees, sorry, meeting the man, and now the Pharisees meet the parents. They're still astounded that such a miracle could have happened, especially through such a sinner like Jesus. So they meet the man's parents. They bring the parents in just to check, you know, do a body identification. Is this really your son? You know, was he really blind and has he really been healed? That's their three questions there in verse 90, 19. And the answers they give are there in 20 and 21. So, is he your son? And they say, yes. Was he born blind? Yes. Well, then how can he now see? Mm, we'll pass on that question. Thanks, Eddie. Now, interesting, when you read it, they know what's going on. They know that they, the man met Jesus. That was the decisive factor. But they're afraid to say anything. Why are they so afraid? Why don't they testify? Well, look there in verse 22, you'll find out. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. That is the Jewish leadership. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. The Jewish leaders have already decided Jesus is not from God. He's not the Christ, the promised coming King of God. And so anyone who said anything about Jesus being such a person, they'll be kicked out, they'll be persecuted. And the parents were just afraid. So having got no joy out of the parents, the Pharisees go back to the man. They meet the man again, verses 24 to 34. And this time they put him on oath. They say, look, mate, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what they say by saying, give glory to God. That's what give glory to God means for them. You can chase that up. In Joshua 7, verse 19, it's a way of saying, honour God by telling us the truth. And what's their key question? Well, they say, first of all, we know this man was a sinner. We know he's not from God. So how did he make you well? How did he give you your sight back if he's not from God? Well, the man just says in verse 25, look, sinner, not a sinner, I don't know. I can just tell you, I haven't been able to see my whole life and now I can see your faces Um, and the only difference was I met Jesus. So he was the decisive factor. But the Pharisees persist. What did he actually do to you? How did he restore you? So there must be some other way, some some clue that says God has done this and it can't be through this man Jesus because we've decided he's not from God. Well, the man who's had his physical sight restored now sees what's going on in front of him. And he just calls it as he sees it. He says, you're just not listening to me. You've made up your mind. I've already told you what happened. And then he puts his tongue firmly in his cheek and he says, why do you want me to tell you again? Would you like to become Jesus' disciples? Well, they're just incensed. And so they say, look, we're keeping our allegiance to Moses, verse 29. We're keepers of the law, not like this Sabbath breaker. I said, we don't even know where this Jesus comes from. And then the man just comes back to him. He says, well, that is remarkable. He's just opened my eyes. I've been blind my whole life. And you say, you don't know where he comes from. It's perfectly obvious. 
He comes from God. No one's ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a blind man who's not from God. Well, you can imagine their response to that. They just say, look, you've been a sinner since birth. You were blind at birth. You've been a sinner since birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they keep their promise. Their promise to kick out anyone who says something glorious about the Lord Jesus. They kick him out of the synagogue. And so then finally we come back to Jesus meets the man again. Jesus, we read, goes and finds the man, verses 35 to 41. And he asks the man an interesting question, which we're going to come back to. It's going to be important. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And we're going to get to who that Son of Man figure is in a moment. The man indicates that, yes, he's prepared to believe in him, but he just doesn't know who he is. It's like he's saying, yes, Jesus, I'll believe in the Son of Man, but can you just point him out so that I can know in whom I'm believing, who he actually is? And Jesus says, you're looking at him. I mean, you've never been able to look at anyone else in your whole life, but right now you're looking at him. It's the one speaking with you. I'm the son of man. And how does the man respond there? In verse 38, he responds with confession. He calls Jesus Lord. He responds with belief and he worships. That is what you see here in this second interaction between Jesus and the man I think, is that you see the man now has spiritual sight. See, he had physical sight restored the first time he met Jesus. And what you see here the second time is he has spiritual sight. He understands who Jesus is. He is the Son of Man. And he responds with belief and trust, confession and worship. Completely different to the Pharisees of the day. Well, friends, what is this healing all about? I want to try to illustrate what I think it's about by um, telling you, and I apologise here, something about sport. Now, look, I really try to avoid sport in general when trying to talk about things because, you know, some people hate it and some people love it. And, well, you can see that I'm such an elite sportsman myself. Um, (laughs) But have you ever been to a day-night match at the cricket or seen any sporting fixture under lights? Um, I'm such an avid cricket fan, tongue firmly planted in cheek, Um, but, you know, I sit there and look around and look at those lights up there. They're amazing, really, aren't they? (laughs) Um, Just as well they have a big scoreboard, you know, it would show you the the highlights of what just happened because normally I'm, you know, reading a book or something. Anyway, (laughs) money well spent. (laughs) Well, one of the things I've noticed going to day-night cricket matches is that the... If you see a, a fielder standing in the outfield, because of all the light towers around, the light shines down on all these different angles and you see this fielder standing there and there's shadows pointing in all different directions, fanning out from his feet. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. Maybe you've just been watching the action. But anyway, <laughs> it's true. You can test it yourself if you set up some floodlights at home. You'll see... Okay, anyway... <laughs> What we see here in this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the man is we see three different shadows fanning out from Jesus' feet. It's like Jesus standing there between three great searchlights and you see three great shadows coming out and each of the shadows are an Old Testament profile of a very important person to come. Three different 
characters, identities, people pointed to in the Old Testament. And you see these three different shadows here in this text. And by looking at the shadows, it highlights for you something about Jesus himself. You get part of his profile. And when you look at all three of them together, you get quite an amazing picture then of who Jesus is, a really, truly exalted picture of who he is. So to identify these three shadows, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, and just then an overview of chapter 10. I think this is where they all come out. Let's start at the beginning of chapter 9. You'll notice that when Jesus saw the man in verse 1, the disciples respond in verse 2 by saying, Rabbi, who sinned here, the man or his parents, that he's in this terrible condition of being born blind? Well, Jesus disavows them of that misunderstanding and instead says, this happened so that the works, and it should be plural there, if you've got an NIV, they've just made it singular, so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is his day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus talks about works in John's Gospel, he's normally talking about the miracles, the the miraculous signs that he's done. And the NIV, unhelpfully, I think, translates it usually as miracles. But that means you then lose the connection here because every time it says miracles, it's normally works. And so what Jesus is saying, this man, in him, God is going to display his works which gives you an indication he's going to do something miraculous. But the miracle is a sign. I mean, when you're driving along a road, trying to go somewhere, you don't, stop, you don't sort of stop the car and go, stop, look at that sign. My goodness, that sign is great. Let's take the sign home and look at it. Unless, you're, of course, you live in a college when they do weird things like that. Collect signs. But... but That is weird, isn't it, to sort of just look at the sign unless you're a sort of signologist person. (laughs) Signs point you somewhere. They point to something. What do the works that the Father has given Jesus to do, these miracles, what do they point to? They point to his identity. So as Jesus is about to do these works, even in this blind man's life, it's pointing to who he is. And he explains who he is there in verse 5. What does he say? He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And read on, verse 6. Having said this, that I am the light of the world, he spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the man's eyes, tells him to go and wash, and suddenly the man can see. The light of the world has given light to this man in darkness. That is, this physical healing is meant to be like an enacted parable. It's point to a greater reality about Jesus. He's not just a man who can restore physical sight. No, this work points to who he is, that he's the light of the world and gives spiritual light to all of those in spiritual darkness. And this is where we meet the first shadow fanning out from Jesus' feet. So if you're jotting it down, you can fill in the blanks that are there on the board. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus, first of all, He is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the Old Testament prophets. Who is Jesus? He's the servant of the Lord from Isaiah. See, behind Jesus saying this, that he is the light of the world, 
is this figure in Isaiah the prophet who is called the servant of the Lord. And one of the things the servant of the Lord will do is that he will bring sight to the blind. Let me just read to you some verses out of Isaiah 42. You can just jot down the reference. Isaiah 42, 6-7. This is the Lord God speaking to this figure, the servant of the Lord. The Lord says, I am the Lord, I have called you my servant in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. What does it mean for this servant of the Lord to be light for the nations? Well, a bit later on, in Isaiah 49.6, he's talking to his servant again and he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is, what will light to the nations? It's talking about salvation. Through this servant of the Lord, God is going to bring about salvation to all nations. That's what it means to be light to the world. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and he makes a blind man see, we're meant to see Jesus as this promised servant of the Lord. He's going to open up and provide this way of salvation for the whole world. Not salvation from physical blindness, no, salvation from death and from sin and from the righteous wrath of God against evil. Now let's just stop there and think about what is that going to mean for you and me? What does it mean for this university, for our world? that Jesus is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah, that he is the light of the world, that he's going to bring salvation. What it means is I think it's a challenge to our university and our culture. See, friends, we study in a place that thinks of itself as very enlightened. We know we don't know everything, but my goodness, we know a heck of a lot. I mean, we have so many lights to enlighten us. I mean, we have the light of science which tells us how things work and how things will always work. We have the light of the theory of religion to explain away these beliefs and this faith. We have the light of philosophical sophistication. We have the light of historical deconstruction. We have the light of economic theory and prosperity. We have so many lights. We're not in darkness. Will our university and our culture accept the truth from the Lord God, that we are in moral and spiritual and even intellectual darkness. It's not just the atmosphere in which we live or study. It's actually, the scriptures say, a darkness that is within us too. We are morally dark, spiritually blind. And we need light. There's only one true light of the world. Jesus says it's him. Here's Jesus telling us he's the light of the world. He graphically demonstrates the fact in healing this man of his physical blindness. He's offering us light and real spiritual life. It's interesting that in this passage, what's the prerequisite for getting real sight, spiritual sight? Uh, the Pharisees see, claim they could see. They say repeatedly, if you trace it through the passage, we know, we know, we know, we've got the answers. We know he's a sinner. We know he's not from God. We know he's not the Christ. 
And just that very claim that they know, they know, they know that Jesus at the very end of the chapter says, and because you claim you can see, that's why you're blind. The prerequisite for spiritual sight is acknowledging that we are on our own, without Jesus, spiritually blind. There's a challenge to our university and our culture. Well, let's turn to the end of the chapter to see this second shadow. Turn uh, to verse 35, the second interaction of Jesus and the man. Let me just read out 35 to 39. Jesus heard that they'd thrown the formerly blind man out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. I think really that comment there in verse 39 is really probably one of the key points of the whole passage. For judgment, Jesus says, I came into the world. Now I just want you to hold that thought, that phrase in your head for a moment. For judgment I came into the world, says Jesus. Well, let me now just add to that something else Jesus says elsewhere, in this time from chapter 12, verse 47. He says, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So here, chapter 9, For judgment I came into the world, chapter 12, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, Jesus, schizophrenic, um, just sort of, he forgot in the course of a couple of chapters what he'd said before, changed his mind about why he's here. Now, how do these things fit together? I think the way it fits together coherently is that the judgment that Jesus introduces into the world is derivative, it flows out of his greater purpose, which is to save. Do you remember when we looked at John chapter 3, Jesus meeting another Pharisee, the Pharisee Nicodemus? One of the things Jesus said to Nicodemus was that he, the son, Jesus, had not been sent into the world to judge or condemn the world, but he'd been sent in to save the world. Yet, Jesus' very presence in the world divides people because people will either believe him and receive life or they will reject him and receive appropriate condemnation. The the wrath of God will, will remain upon them. So whilst Jesus has come to save, his very presence is the great dividing line on which people fall one way or the other. Because you either accept him and be saved or you reject him and your guilt remains. So while he's come to save, judgment is just intrinsic. It's right there with it. Well, this theme of judgment brings us to the second Old Testament shadow standing at Jesus' feet in this passage. Do you notice how it started off when he talked to the blind man here in verse 35? He asked him whether he believes in the Son of Man. So the second shadow here, which you might like to write down, Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel. Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel the prophet in the Old Testament. Now, Son of Man was just a favourite phrase that uh, Jesus had a way of talking about himself. I think the reason he used it is that it was suitably ambiguous it suited his purposes. For instance, the, the, the phrase son of man can just mean human being, mortal. 
Uh, sort of like um, in the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis talks about human beings as sons of Adam. just means mortal, human being. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, yeah, you're just saying you're mortal, you're a human being. So it's sort of not saying very much at that point. But the thing is, because of the prophet Daniel, in particular Daniel chapter 7, the son of man was also a figure in the Old Testament who was not just any old person but was a truly great and glorious one who would come. Let me read out to you what Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 says about this son of man. To this son of man, says Daniel, was given authority and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that's a very convenient self-title because whilst it might appear innocent enough, it also has these echoes of this glorious and powerful king whom all nations will worship from the prophet of Daniel. And I think that is the, that is the echo that Jesus means here when he meets this blind man and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in this figure from Daniel, this one to come? And the man says, well, point him out. Point him out and I'll believe. And Jesus says, well, it's me. I'm him, the great Son of Man. And the man worships him. Well, how is that related to what Jesus then says about judging in verse 39? Well, a key passage here is John chapter 5. If you go back, actually, to John chapter 5, you might like to flick back if you've got a Bible there. Chapter 5, verse 26, this is after Jesus has healed the invalid that I talked about before. Jesus, again, talks about the Son of Man and about judgment, and he just he matches them up very clearly so you can see the connection. I'm looking at John chapter 5, verse 26. And Jesus says, For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's the key phrase there. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then Jesus goes on to talk about some other things from the book of Daniel. I think just to identify that this is the Son of Man he's talking about, In this case, he picks up some ideas from Daniel chapter 12. He says, Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Well, Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 talked about the multitudes who will sleep in the dust of the earth, who will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That same sort of Twofold resurrection, resurrection to life, resurrection to shame and condemnation. And Jesus talks the same way here in John chapter 5. Well, what impact does all of this have? Well, I think what we see here then, this shadow, which we see Jesus as the great and glorious Son of Man from Daniel, who has authority over all, in particular from John 5, authority to judge. He's received that authority from his Father. And whilst he has come, sent by the Father to save the world, this very coming introduces this great bifurcation, this great division in the world between those who 
hear Jesus and respond to him with faith and those who reject him. Between those, I guess, the sheep and the goats, between those who are Jesus' disciples and between those who are just the world. Or in other language from John's Gospel, it divides people between the children of God and the children of the devil. It divides people from the children of the light and people who just love darkness because their deeds are evil. So Jesus can say, for judgment I have come into the world. And with that judgment comes all the intended consequences, all the intended delights, but also the intended terrors. The delights are salvation and forgiveness and eternal life, but the terrors are condemnation, God's wrath remaining upon you because you have rejected Jesus. Of everlasting contempt is how Daniel put it. That is, what does how does it apply to you and me? Well, one of the things I think this means is that when we present Jesus to this world, this dark world, our proclamation of him needs to reflect the reality of who he is, that he has come to save, yes, and that's a great comfortable message to proclaim. But he's come to judge with all the intended consequences. Will we pull back from that part of who Jesus is? I'll tell you one of the problems if we pull back from that. If we pull back from that, then what that means is that the presentation of Christianity and faith in Jesus Christ becomes just another religious option with no real urgency to it. Oh, I can take it or leave it. White bread, brown bread... Any other religion, Christianity, it's just an option, right? There's no urgency here, nothing that really matters about this decision. But Jesus says, for judgment I've come. I think what it also does is it pulls pulls us away from the urgency, but also just pulls away from the relevance of it. He's come to save me, that I might not fall under judgment, God's just judgment of my rejection of him. Well, let's uh, move finally to the third shadow that we see here. What I want to point out here is uh, some of the things that Jesus talks about in chapter 10. And uh, we've already talked about how the Pharisees, though they claim to know, they claim to be able to see, really, Jesus says, they're blind because they have rejected him. And as I said before, this is part of a much bigger battle, a war that sort of wages between Jesus and the Pharisees. What I want to point out is that this battle is not just an example of those who reject Jesus. This is, there's actually a much wider picture here. This rejection of Jesus is terrible. It is a terrible, wider narrative, I've called it there. Why is it so terrible that these people have rejected Jesus, these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders? Well, it's because they're the leaders. The great terribleness of it is that the leaders of God's people are rejecting the very one who's come from God. In in fact, not only do they reject Jesus, they're actually trying to remove Jesus out of the picture. From chapter 5 onwards, we're just told they were trying to kill him. They want to get rid of this one. In fact, they want to keep the people, God's people, for themselves. That's part of their goal. Listen to what they'll say a bit later in chapter 12, because really this... This battle between Jesus and the Pharisees starts in chapter 5 and I think it reaches the climax in chapter 12. 
And in utter frustration, the Pharisees say at the end there in chapter 12, verse 19, you see, you can do nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after Jesus. Well, what's the problem with that? They've gone after Jesus and they're leaving them behind. So unlike John the Baptist, one of the great prophets of God, we met earlier, who said, he must become greater, Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. Now the Pharisees say, no, let's get rid of him and keep the people for ourselves. Well, what this indicates is the third shadow. What's the third shadow? Well, the third shadow is that Jesus is he's the shepherd of God's people from Ezekiel. That's the third shadow. He's the shepherd of God's people from Ezekiel. Let's have a look there at chapter 10, and we're not going to read through it. I just want to point out what Jesus tries to say here. Again, the chapter division doesn't really help you because Jesus just had this interaction with the Pharisees and the blind man, and having just talked to the Pharisees, Jesus just plows straight on in chapter 10, and he tries to tell the Pharisees something. He tells them something by setting up a word picture. Like, let me tell you just a little story, a figure of speech, to try to tell you what's going on here. This conflict between you, the religious leaders of God's people, and me, let me tell you what that's like. What he says in chapter 10, 1 to 6, he says, it's like I'm the shepherd of the sheep, but you guys are thieves and robbers. And the sheep, God's people, they're listening to me because I'm the true shepherd, but they're not going to listen to you because you're thieves and robbers. I mean, think about the blind man. Did he listen to the Pharisees? Did he accept them? No. Who did he listen and believe? He listened to Jesus, the shepherd. But the problem there in verse 6, we're told, is that they just didn't get it. They didn't get this word picture. So Jesus morphs it and tries again. He stays on the sheep farm, if you like, and just changes the image. What he then says, next in verses 7 to 10, he says, okay, let me try this. It's like I'm the gate and you're the thieves and the robbers. And the gate, see, that's where the sheep go in and out and that's where they find good pasture. Whereas the thieves and robbers, what do they do? They're just stealing and they're thieving and they're trying to kill and destroy the sheep. I mean, what did the Pharisees do to the blind man? They kicked him out of the congregation of God's people. They kicked him out of the synagogue. That's not caring for the sheep, helping them to find good pasture. That's trying to kill and destroy the sheep. And then in, uh, later in chapter 10, verses 11 to 18, Jesus morphs the image again. He says, okay, okay, this time I'm the good shepherd and you're the hired hands. And the good shepherd protects the sheep, but the hired hand... When a threat comes, because you're only a hired hand and you don't really care about the sheep, you just run away. You're not actually caring for these sheep at all. But I'm the good shepherd. I really care for the sheep. Now this image that Jesus is picking up of him being the good shepherd, it all comes out of Ezekiel chapter 34. That's one of the places where you can find this shadow explicated for us. Because back in the days of the prophet Ezekiel, there'd been a similar problem that the leaders of God's people were not caring for the sheep. They'd done a terrible job. And so the Lord God pronounces judgment on the leaders of God's people. And he calls them shepherds and he says, you've done a terrible job. This is actually what he says, Ezekiel 34.10. He says, I am against the shepherds. I will hold them accountable for the flock. 
and I were going to put a stop to their tending the sheep and no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I'm going to rescue my sheep from their mouths. So he says he's going to come in judgment to the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 and he says I will look after the the sheep instead. And then through Ezekiel 34 that idea develops and then what you read later on is that the Lord God says I'm going to raise up a new shepherd for my sheep. This new shepherd is going to be like a new King David, the great king of old who was my, my servant, my chosen one, my Christ. I'm going to raise up a new King David to shepherd my sheep. This is what he says there, Ezekiel 34, this is verses 23 to 24. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my shepherd, servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So there's the Old Testament shadow of which Jesus is the reality. Jesus is saying, I am that shepherd from Ezekiel 34, the new King David that God is raising up to care for the sheep. He announces that he's the good shepherd. How much does Jesus care for the sheep? Well, you'll see there in John chapter 10, he cares about the sheep so much that he will even die to protect them. And if you've read right through John's Gospel, you know how the story ends, this account of Jesus' life, of his death and his resurrection. Jesus does indeed give up his own life to bring that salvation to all nations. That's how much he cares for his sheep. So let me wrap all this up by just a few reflections, particularly under the heading of hope. We've talked a fair bit about judgment today, but I want to finish by talking about hope. I want to say in these three shadows fanning out from Jesus' feet is hope for this world. In each of those three shadows, when you trace it through, there is hope that features in the Old Testament passages. So it's there in Jesus as the servant from Isaiah because we're told that servant from Isaiah would be a light for the nations that salvation may go to the ends of the earth. There is salvation for all, not just for those from the Jewish people. Hope for all nations. But it's also there in Jesus as the Son of Man from Daniel. The Son of Man who was given such authority, such glory and power that we were told in Daniel 7.14 that all nations, all peoples from every language will worship him. All the nations coming to the great Son of Man. There's hope for all of us. And it's there in Jesus as the good shepherd from Ezekiel. In fact, Jesus says it there himself in John 10, 16. I don't know when you read through passages from the scriptures, if sometimes you think, with whom am I meant to identify? Well, I'll tell you where you are in John chapter 9 and 10. Most clearly, you are here in John 10, 16. This is where Jesus talks about you. And he says to the Pharisees, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, that is, this nation of Israel. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. He's talking about you, friend. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There will be one shepherd, see, for all nations and cultures, the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be one people, a flock drawn from all the nations of the world. 
who, like that blind man, confess Jesus as Lord, believe and trust in him and live a life of worship and service to him. So there is hope. There is hope for you, for me, for this dark world, for a university that is blind. It's hope in Jesus, the one who helps us see in the dark. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in our utter darkness, but that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to save us, to be the light of the world, to be the light that gives life. We praise and thank you for this wonderful fact. And we pray, Father, that in us and through us and with us you might fulfil your great purpose of drawing people from every nation and language and tribe to the Lord Jesus that there might be one shepherd, him alone, and one people, your flock. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.